Everything in the central area here in Hollywood is being funneled toward the Pantages Theater because this is Oscar night. And keep your eyes on the losers tonight as they applaud the winners. You'll see great understanding, great sportsmanship, great acting. Well, the only thing left to say is meet the champion. Hello, and welcome back to the Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movie with the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I am thy host, Danny Vincent. With me also are these are the two. <laughs> Thank thee for thy introduction, Daniel. I'm Sarah. <laughs> Sister Sarah again. <laughs> Sister Sarah. <laughs> well, with these, these, and these thous, I don't know what's going on, but I'm just trying to get my daughters married. I'm Caleb Bunn. <laughs> All right. So this week, we find ourselves at the 29th Academy Awards, where a film called Giant had 10 nominations. It won only one. Best Director for George Stevens. Sounds a little familiar to this last year. Moving on. It was a film with nine nominations titled The King and I. It won five of these. It won Best Actor for Yul Brynner, Best Scoring of a Musical Picture for Alfred Newman and Ken Darby, Best Sound Recording, Best Art Direction Color, and Best Costume Design and Color. Then there was a film with eight nominations called Around the World in 80 Days. It won five as well. It won Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score for Drama, drama or Comedy, and that went to a posthumous win to Victor Young. Um, then it also won Best Cinematography Color and Best Film Editing. Then there's a film with seven nominations called The Ten Commandments, another one you might have heard of. That only won one, Best Visual Effects, and we're really lucky that there was a competitor in that category, because otherwise that would have been our Snub Club movie, and it would have been... You know, I would have had to bring on the guy I had on for Prince of Egypt on my podcast so I could show him what real cinema was. Uh, but no, uh, there was one over the next film at six nominations and won nothing. And that is William Wyler, returning member of this podcast, William Wyler's Friendly Persuasion. Sarah, what was Friendly Persuasion nominated for? Oh, geez. Okay. Friendly Persuasion was nominated for Best Picture and Lost to Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, Best Director for William Wyler, who lost to George Stevens for Giant. Wyler was, of course, nominated 11 more times for directing and producing. Uh, He won three for directing, plus one honorary. Uh, Best Supporting Actor for Anthony Perkins, uh, who lost to Anthony Quinn for Lust for Life. Best Adapted Screenplay for no one, uh, but really it was Michael Wilson. Uh, who lost to James Poe, uh, John Farrow, and S.J. Perlman for Around the World in 80 Days. Wilson was nominated two more times, uh, once in 1962, but was uncredited until 1995, and he won two times, but his 1958 win was uncredited until 1984. Uh, Best song for Friendly Persuasion uh, for Dimitri Tim. Yumkin uh, and Paul Francis Webster, uh, and they lost to Jay Livingston and Ray Evans for a little song called K Sarah Sarah from The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, Tiumkin was nominated 17 more times and won four. Webster was nominated 12 more times and won three. And finally, best sound recording for well, you've heard of the Daniels, get ready for the Gordons, Gordon R. Glennon <laughs> and Gordon E. Sawyer. Um, and they lost to Carlton W. Faulkner for The King and I. Uh, Sawyer was nominated 12 more times and won three plus one honorary. 
Can I just say before I ask Caleb for historic context that I'm in shock at these noms now because I had a winner picked out already and it turns out this person is not nominated. So now I gotta rethink my my life decisions. <laughs> uh but uh Caleb, do you have any historic context? I did see on Wikipedia that this has two separate uh interesting tabs in relation to history. <laughs> Yeah, when I started watching this, I actually remembered that somehow I knew one of them. Um, the I think the one that connects the most to our podcast is its connection to the House's Un-American Activity Committee, which we have talked about multiple times. Sarah kind of alluded to this because Michael Wilson, the screenwriter, uh, was uh, an unfriendly witness in front of HUAC. And originally, Frank Capra was supposed to direct this film but distance himself from the project because of uh, Wilson's uh, reputation. A couple of years later, of course, William Wyler would pick it up. He made the um, movie a little less anti-war, uh, kind of undercuts the ending of the novel this is based upon and um, Wilson's script by, well, we'll get into it. But, um, and that way kind of helped distance uh, the film a little bit from its Huac connections. But we can even see just with this being produced after the, you know, kind of troubled history that, uh, you know, things were still happening even with the Huac connections, which of course we know now a lot of uh, scripts were still being written by Truman Capote. And there was a lot of push behind the scenes from various people in Hollywood to uh, bring back the careers of the blacklist like another gary cooper movie uh high noon also ronald reagan used this in the cold war but yeah that's after the time of our podcast so you know that's not uh sorry the way you said that not my business. The, the, the way i just heard that was the academy was abolished after before the before ron reagan no there. no but like you know <laughs> yeah, I know the people that. watching this movie in the 50s wouldn't be thinking oh this will ron be cool reagan, ronald the reagan's president? cold war I mean, the, ron reagan, the actor <laughs> president of the academy <laughs> um all right i got some little fun stats about the ceremony the big deal here is that this is the first time international features a competitive category instead of being a special achievement the first winner is la strada Federico Fellini's classic film uh, as one can usually guess nowadays with the Oscars, is that uh, La Strada was the only ever film to receive an additional nomination. Ergo, it pretty much automatically won off of that statistic. It's pretty hard to get other nominations and not win Best International Feature if you're like that. This is the first time all the Best Picture films are in color, and this is the first time they've actually recorded the telecast, so it could be aired at a different time, not live. The other thing that is interesting and is kind of related to what you just said about the blacklist, is that the original story category, and I will use Wikipedia's terminology for it, had, quote, two interesting quirks this year, which is that the brave one uh, won the Oscar for Best Original Story. However, uh, the writer of the brave one was Robert Rich, a.k.a. Dalton Trumbo, so he could not receive credit under his own name. Uh, I don't know when he eventually got the Oscar. I didn't bother looking it up. Uh, however, oh, I totally said Truman Capote instead of Dalton Trumbo. Yeah, I just kind of <laughs> went, went with it because I was like, oh, I don't know about Capote. Like, sure, whatever. Like, <laughs> no, no, I meant I meant Trumbo. Uh, Brian Cranston is mad. You mixed up Philip Seymour Hoffman. 
Uh, if I had seen that movie, maybe I would have. Uh... I think everyone is okay that not seeing that movie. Um, the other thing I think is more interesting is that Edward Burns and Elwood Ullman had to withdraw their names for consideration for their work on High Society, which had been nominated for original story originally. Uh, however, uh, the, okay, actually, wait, this is actually a little crazy. I'm sorry, I'm misreading this. So there were two films. There was a film in 1956 titled High Society, which had Bing Crosby, Grace Kelly, and Frank Sinatra. There was also a film called High Society in 1955, which starred the Bowery Brothers. Bowery Boys. Uh, they actually nominated the writers of the Bowery Boys movie when they intended to nominate the ones of the musical. However, High Society, uh, the musical, was not eligible anyway because it was based off the Philadelphia story. So it was not eligible for an original story nomination because it was not original story. Uh, other interesting facts are James Dean is only the the only actor in history to get two posthumous noms for acting. Ingrid Bergman was not there to get her actress award. She Cary Grant accepted it for her. However, she did present Best Director from Paris. Finally, this is only the second time in history that. Best Picture, Director, and all the acting Oscars went to different films. This does not happen again until 2005. Um, with Around the World in 80s being the sixth film to win without any acting nominations. And finally, there's a certain film that got no nominations uh, about doors. That if you ever go to film school, you will definitely learn about a lot. And that is John Ford's The Searchers did not get a single nomination. Sarah's giving it a rightful yeah, shrug. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, a certain other film got a few nominations. Six nominations, perhaps. That movie's friendly to persuasion. Sarah, read them off again. We'll just do a loop of the <laughs> I mean, yeah, probably better than anything else that we're going to talk about. Uh, well, what do you, uh, why don't you guys drop your uh, general takes on this? I horrible. always go first. <laughs> do you want to expand? I just... This was like this was like the Patriot if they were well, first of all, the Patriot's also not a good movie, but <laughs> it's like the Patriot if they were Quakers. It's like the Patriot if they were like the Duggar family. That's what this movie is. <laughs> it's like it's so boring. And it's like anytime they do anything interesting, the mom and dad are like, no, no, no. It's like you know, I want to go fight in the war because it's the right thing to do because people are enslaved. No, no, no. It's just like Gary Cooper is like the most pussy character in this whole movie. It's just, you know what? Believe me if you have to, but I just. <laughs> like, just, just let me say what I want to say. I just, it was bad. It was bad and it was like, it wasn't even a good message. It's like, you know, if you're nice to confederates and they'll they'll leave you alone okay let's be nice to nazis let's be nice to cops let's be nice to white supremacists like what no that's my take that's probably the most passionate i'm gonna get this whole time i love it i love it um listen i like a lot of movies that don't have what you would consider plots you know, a lot of Richard Linklater films, arguably a lot of Chloe Zhao's movies. Um, she has three, but go on. Sorry. <laughs> she has she, four films. She has to four. Get me like, yeah, you're right. She has four. I, was, I forget Eternals exists. 
Hiring yeah, and arguably <laughs> none of those have plots. <laughs> That's my point. It's like you can't say a lot of her movies and there's only four. <laughs> Go on. Well, sorry. yeah, but like, technically Eternals has a plot, even though it might be better if it didn't. The difference. Here's the thing, though. You can have a movie that doesn't have a plot. You can't have it be over two hours, though. This nothing happens in this movie. Nothing happens. And the thing is, I would be fine with like a an exploration of like the Quaker life and how it relates to nonviolence, especially since the Quakers were very vocal abolitionists. And I think there's an interesting contradiction there with not willing to go to war over it, but you know, willing to advocate for it when it was an unpopular position. But man, this is not the movie for it. At the same time, I do think that there's good stuff in there. Um, I think it was cool to see a Quaker meeting uh, on film, even if it's not, you know, 100% accurate to what those would have been like at the time. And I, I like, I don't know. There, there's some good stuff here, but man, there's just a lot of nothing around it. Well, before I give my take, I have to ask Caleb a question about something you said, which is, um, do you happen to remember the runtime of the one time Richard Linklater was actually competing at the Oscars? How long his movie was? Uh, Are you talking about Boyhood? Yeah, the movie that famously everyone says has nothing going on during it. That is I mean, 163 minutes long. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I'm just saying Boyhood you can't the, you can't just write you can't just write off saying like movies can't be over two hours long and not have a traditional plot. <laughs> like, well, okay, I, <laughs> they can. It's just harder for them to be good. But also. I'm not defending Boyhood. Boyhood is not the Linklater film I'm going to defend. Really? Well, it's definitely my favorite of the ones I've seen. And I, I'm much more drawn to like the uh, Everybody Wants Some style of his, where it's much more get in, get out. Have you guys seen School of Rock? <laughs> the, um, one, the one with a plot? The one of his movies a plot. with a plot? <laughs> um, well, this is going to be one of those times. Or I come in and go like, I thought this was one of the better movies we watched recently. Easily. Uh, I think the fact that it's plotless is an asset of the film. I think it's a very vibe movie. I thought this was, I mean, I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's certainly way more interesting than a lot of the stuff we've covered recently simply because it is plotless and seems, I think it starts to fall apart when it gets a plot near the end. I'm just kind of like, can we just go back to them like hanging out and like, Oh, should we buy an organ? Oh, I don't know about that. I think that stuff is so fascinating to me. Uh, and maybe it's not accurate, but you know what? I, I appreciate that the goal of this movie was Quakers. They're like us too. That should have been the title. <laughs> okay, okay. Here's the thing though, Danny. I And I don't want to hold you to an initial take that strongly, but we just covered Guys and Dolls. I thought this which... was better than Guys and Dolls, definitely. You're insane. No, this is Blackboard. This was better than Guys and Dolls. Definitely. Blackboard Jungle, which I don't like. I think it's a that. bad movie, this but it's better. better. This was better than Blackboard Jungle. Uh, this okay. Uh, look, if I open up Can the Snub Club page, I will find what I think was the last movie to be on this level. Because I don't think I don't think this is a great movie. I think this is a good movie. And I think those other two are good movies too. But I think this is a better movie than that. I think the last movie we covered that I would say was a better than this. Oh, well, this is actually pretty easy. It's the bandwagon. I think the bandwagon was better than this. But War of the Worlds, K-Muni, Blackboard Jungle, Guys and Dolls, I thought this was better than all of them. 
I thought it was so fascinating. I thought the performances were great. It was particularly the main three. I thought Anthony Perkins was fantastic. I thought Gary Cooper gives a very restrained performance for 19, like for what this film is in like 1950. Like this is like, this is like when Ethan, well, no, Ethan Hawke's a great actor and he's not really a movie star. Like, okay. He's not like a star persona movie star. You know what I mean? It's like if Tom Hanks popped up in like a link later film out of nowhere and just give a very naturalistic performance. That's what this feels like to me. I think the mom is great too. I I don't know. I just thought it was really good. Like I, I do think it's a little too long and that's particularly because it decides to have a plot for the last 20 minutes. I think all the stuff of the civil war, cut it. Just make this be a movie about Quakers like hanging out. Oh, it was good. Sorry, <laughs> I, I thought this was a good movie. <laughs> disagree. I mean, you can disagree. That's fine. Like, <laughs> I wasn't like, how dare you like the Kane Mutiny? You would say Okay, so like, speaking of the Kane Mutiny, here's the thing. I stand Anthony Perkins, gay icon, love him, just fantastic actor. Um, he couldn't even save this movie for me. Well, yeah. He's, well, he's barely in it. <laughs> well, yeah, he's like definitely the uh, out of the main three, he is the smallest role of the three, and the only time he becomes like a big character is during the segment of the movie. I think it's just okay. So the goose has more screen time than him. I wouldn't go that far, but okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is this is a problem because like I'm in between you and Sarah. We're like, I don't like despise this movie or anything. I was definitely getting very bored during it. But I'm just by contrast, Danny, it's gonna come off like I hate it. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I don't love the movie. To me, the movie is a 3.5 out of five, like a B. Like that to me is a B. But I think every movie since Guys and Dolls, I've given on Letterboxd a three out of five. Sorry, every movie, not just Guys and Dolls, because Guys and Dolls last week, since The Bandwagon, I've given it a 3 out of 5. So inherently, I could say, yeah, I like this more than those four, just because of the little grade I gave them. And I also think, yeah, I think, I'll be honest, like, it's still shorter than Guys and Dolls. <laughs> it's still a shorter movie than that. Guys and Dolls had songs. <laughs> they were in the sewer. Is that Quakers? Is that Quakers? <laughs> <laughs> oh no this had car chases could... horse chases sorry <laughs> the buggy chases were the best part of this i think they had um... a sequence where it goes to the fair it had a sequence where the mom like attacks some of a broom for whacking a goose i thought that was a very yeah, that powerful was the sequence. problem she had with the confederates okay <laughs> okay i'm not saying it's politics are good but I also think the whole point of it is to depict like the Quaker lifestyle. And if you can't be like, oh, wow, this movie, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm dropping another problematic take here like I did a couple weeks ago. But to me, it's like this movie is about Quakers in the 1800s. You can't be like, well, how like they they didn't have, they should have gone and helped more. Like, yeah, they should have. I think the movie ultimately comes down on that. You're right that it doesn't take as strong a stance as it should on like the slavery aspect of it and like freeing people of it but it does ultimately come down on like yes and i know that's like against the anti-war message of like apparently the novel but it does come down on like yes these people should have gone and fight maybe they like regret like a bit of their violence but ultimately at the end all three of the main characters do commit violence to protect their home after they say the entire movie we're not gonna do that we're not gonna do that we're not gonna do that oh they do that and the home is like the representation like it's not the representation because that makes it sound like it's like way bigger than it is, but it is the union. Like that is what it represents in the movie is like it's their home front. They live in Indiana, 
I don't know. I'm not, I'm not mad. I sound like way more mad about it than I am, but it's like, to me, it's, you can't be mad at this movie for being like, oh man, these Quakers did not go and help when I presume what it's depicting is accurate to this group of Quakers at the time. Here's my problem with it, Danny. Like I'll make, you know, I, I think it's a little weird that she gets so upset about the goose. Right. But send that aside. I am fine with whatever moral stance this movie wants to take in its depiction of the Quakers. I just want the movie to be about that. This movie isn't about that. It has a good scene at the beginning where an army recruiter comes to their meeting and tries to recruit them. It has all this stuff at the end where the Confederate Raiders are actually coming up. But the whole middle completely ignores the war, except that this one character is going off to it. This one very well, minor character. Which is why I ultimately it's, think... It's about... Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, go on. No, it's just... It's, it's about organs and horses and, and to me, this weird woman and her me, daughter. that's like, like... Okay, I, I can deal about the widow sequence. That entire sequence, I'm like, all right, this is weird. And she gets, like, an and credit with abs. So I guess it must have been someone semi-famous. But, yeah, I can do about that sequence. But to me... I ultimately agree. I think this movie would be better without the, the Civil War framing of it. I think it'd just be like set this like either 10 years prior or 10 years later and just have it about Quakers hanging out. I think I'd enjoy that more. But I also think that it's a miracle that a movie like this was made in 19... What is this? 56? Yeah, 19... Yeah, 1956 and was sold like, yeah, this is a... Like this is a this is the blockbuster, guys. Just Quakers hanging out. <laughs> like. Well, let me see when Shandoah came out. Do you have anything to say, Sarah? Me and Danny have been. I don't uh, know. I mean, I just didn't like it. I just, I didn't like it. I just felt like, I don't know. This is gonna make me sound bad. <laughs> I feel like any movie where religion plays this strong of a part. Well, just makes me I uncomfortable. Did, I did text you as soon as I started. I, within five minutes, I was like, oh, Sarah's not going to like this one. I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm like, I'm going back to when the daughter was dancing and the mom was like, oh, no. And it just is like, come on, dude. Like, she's See, just dancing. That is the thread of it I like. I like, because I'm I'm religious. I'm not a Quaker. I, I Quakers are super interesting. I want to go to a Quaker meeting at some point. but um. I like that there is a thread of this about moving away from dogma because I respect like convictions, but having grown up in an evangelical environment, I am very wary of dogma. So I like the growth at the end of seeing like the mom move away from her like strong, like fundamentalist roots, all that. I think like when the elders come and they have to hide the fact that they have an organ is really funny. Yeah. It's sorry it's a great scene (laughs) yeah no i'm kind of the opposite of you sarah in the sense that like the religion stuff is what i like but it like even then that's so watered down by the rest of the movie i feel like in a sense it is i don't want to i don't want to like because sarah your opinion is completely valid on this movie i'm well aware that i'm probably the weird one on this likes it it's got like a three it's got like a three average rating on letterbox like i'm well aware this is not a movie that like is considered a classic in any regard. But I think it is something that if you come with it with like that background of being in like, you know, the church where you watch Veggie Tales every day and are told you better like better be good for goodness sake type of thing. And like 
I think having that background and watching this to me is just very fascinating because then you get like, because I feel like I'm used to in things like this, I, I mean like today, like in Christian films today where I, I don't go out and see them myself other than the one time I saw the one that was nominated for best original song at the Oscars. You know, it is all just like very strict I don't want to say dogma really because but like you know very strict into the book Christianity where if you deviate a little bit from the path you're messed up pray to God and you'll get what you want but this to me depicts more like the religion I kind of more grew up with where it's like yeah we'll go to church and then at home we'll like just like we'll still say like we still do follow everything but then it's like oh yeah well we can have a little fun you know I think that I think it's interesting to put that story with these Quakers because you can tell Gary Cooper's character, like, he is very devout, but it's also like, yeah, I guess maybe we can play some music, you know, even if the wife doesn't want me to. Or, like, you know, maybe, like, I think he finds it kind of funny how, like, the the widow sequence, right? I don't think the widow sequence is very good either, but I think the dad is oddly amused by, like, the daughters during it. Um, I don't know. To me, it gave me, like, a weird nostalgia for that part of my childhood where it's like you know yeah like we might be like here to learn about god but we're also here to play dodgeball i don't know like i don't know if that makes any sense but i think that is why i ultimately liked it because it gave it more of a dimension to this like devout setting that i'm used to seeing nowadays in films that tackle it that reminded me of a i'm trying to look up the artist but there's a song I love, I have a playlist on Spotify called Deconstruction Core, which is all the music about, you know, growing up and moving away from traditional religion. Sunday Morning by Tyson uh, Motzenbacher has this whole verse where it's like, like describing this visceral, like come to Jesus type moment in worship. And then he pauses and goes, and then we played kickball. <laughs> and that kind of <laughs> is this movie. <laughs> I, I, and I like seeing that depicted and i know it's not like and i i get that like again i totally get why you might find this boring i think if i was to see this like at the music box i would find it boring i was pausing it a lot while i was watching this i just needed to i needed to like move laundry and stuff and i think that also helped the film a lot too but i don't know to me it made me kind of like not because it's not like the type of nostalgia was like oh it was so great back then but just like the oh yeah this is what my childhood was kind of like I know it's kind of weird to say about this movie of Quakers when I definitely was not as strict as that, but it is just a dynamic I don't think. Nowadays, even when you get like good Christian movies, it's like silence where it's like these people are devout the entire time, you know? Mm -hmm. So getting this like cool family dynamic to me was, I don't know, I liked it. I liked it. I, again, there are definitely moments in it that don't work. But... <laughs> it's like... Can I do I everything's so disconnected in this movie. I'm trying to find a like a connecting thread we can talk about. But y'all know like did y'all think the beginning was just super weird with the kid just narrating about the goose for such a long period of time? I thought the goose in general was weird. <laughs> it had a good payoff, but the goose like I don't think the movie really got me until after they came. Because also, as I said, the Civil War stuff did not interest me at all. The movie didn't really capture my attention until after they came back from meeting and the Civil War talk was done. Like, and it was like, should we go to the fair? There's going to be dancing there. Well, I don't know about I hate dance. I the fair so much. Oh, I thought it was great. That was one of my favorite sequences. 
Because that's when you start to see that the dad, like, even though he is still into it, he's like, oh, these instruments look cool. Wait, actually, I have a question for you guys. In the first scene, when the guy goes, I sell organs, did you all, I immediately jumped to, whoa, what is this movie? I did not think, like, music organs. <laughs> we were in the, like, some Sweeney Todd stuff. I did like in the uh, in the fair section, there was, you know, there were like small moments that were Anthony Perkins' friend, whose name is Caleb. Maybe that's why I like this scene. I forgot to introduce um, you that way. That's how I wanted to jump into like I couldn't remember the guy's last name. He had a previous scene where he talked about how he is like kind of prone to violence. And so that's why he's not joining the war, because it would be uh, especially uh, bad for him. And when they're at the fair, he's like, oh, I can wrestle because that's like friendly violence. But then he sees that he's hurting the guy and he walks away and it gets him in some trouble. I I do like that sequence. I think that sequence is really well put together and it almost ties into the rest of the like movie's thoughts on violence. But then that character never comes back. And I don't feel like that experience ever really affects Anthony Perkins decision later in the movie. Yeah, it is. I think it's. I think that sequence is interesting, especially because right after that, also there's the bit where like the kid's hat gets stolen when he punches back. It's like, how dare you punch back? I don't know. I think that also just kind of reminded me of like you know in general how we talk to children about how like you need to defend yourself, but not really because violence is bad. Because violence is bad for the record for this for, for children. <laughs> Well, and that's that's what I'm kind of wondering about. I mean, when I work with is listening, violent, I don't do not condone violence <laughs> with children. <laughs> well, like traditional pacifism does allow for self defense, and when you think of like the nonviolence of the civil rights movement, like everyone in the civil rights movement was carrying guns because they knew they were in the deep south and they needed to defend themselves. Read uh, the Deacons of Self Defense if you want to learn more about that. So I'm wondering how stringent the Quakers actually were around this time around that. Cause I understand not wanting to like being a conscientious objector, although that term won't be around yet, but I wonder like when Gary Cooper's being shot at, at the end, does Quaker theology allow him to defend himself? I will say with the uh, conscious objector thing, I did definitely get some Hacksaw Ridge vibes. Specifically, first half of Hacksaw Ridge vibes during this movie, uh, especially during the war stuff, with how a little heavy-handed it was. Sarah, I feel bad. I feel like I, I really earlier was like, "No, this movie is good," and I don't want to be like that to you. <laughs> I just don't have anything to say. Like, I'm just like, I feel like I dissociated for most of this. Like, it was, I don't know. Like, I, it could have been a good movie. I just feel like. See, I'm being gaslit. Gaslit. No, you're right, Sarah. It isn't good. I, I mean, I'm like... the only one. I'm the one. I, I'm the. One. Sorry, go on. I don't, don't want to be, be like I'm the one being gaslit. I don't want to gaslight you into thinking I'm the one being gaslit. That's not nice. I just feel like we've already seen. I remember Mama. I try to forget. I try to forget Mama. You try to. I I forgot her. I don't even need to try. Yeah. Well, this movie brought me back because I just feel like. I don't know. I just, I don't really care about any of these characters. I wanted to care about Anthony Perkins so bad. I just couldn't. 
ultimately just not it's not for me well you know a movie you could possibly care about uh about a decade later in 1965 jimmy stewart was in a movie called shenandoah which is basically this except there's a lot more gunfights and it's much better i did see that for the letterbox game on every podcast it is the number one related film to this on letterbox it is, <laughs> it is about a farmer who is not joining the war and then unlike this movie the war does come to him in the first act instead of the third so i just see that uh, to me is like jimmy Stewart's so cool and gary cooper is like such a lame that it's like of course he would do that <laughs> okay okay i gotta ask because i realized earlier i referred to i mean i don't know if you guys are because i think there's like agreed upon like contemporary versions of class stars like gary Cooper, not gary cooper George Clooney is Cary Grant. Tom Hanks is Jimmy Stewart. I know I refer to Gary Cooper as Tom Hanks. Who do you think is the modern Gary Cooper? Because I don't think it is. Is it Bradley? Is it Bradley Cooper? Is that who it is? No. I don't know. I'm just using the last name Cooper. It would, it would have to be older, I think. Well, at this point, but like High Noon, it doesn't need to be older. High, High Noon was only a couple years before this. Oh, um, we just been yeah, we've been just stuck in tires for a while. <laughs> Let me look. I have no idea, man. Like I'm trying to go through because I don't think Humphrey Bogart, for example, I don't think he really has a parallel nowadays. So maybe no, Humphrey Cooper Bogart doesn't. and James Dean are too unique. I the thing about Cooper too is I, think, I feel like I think Dean gets comparisons though just because he died young like Ledger. I've definitely seen that. Even though I don't. Really yeah, know. yeah. But I think that's more circumstance than yeah. person. I think there's something with Cooper where I'm also being thrown off because like every movie I've seen him in, he plays a different type of character. Um, so he actually like, acts. So yes. <laughs> compare this to Man of the West, a movie I don't like, but he plays an absolute like piece well, of no, crap. Well, no, I, only, I think the only one, other like, one I've seen is um, if I remember right, is High Noon, which I haven't seen since high school, so very long time. I mean, High Noon's Noon's similar to this in that he's playing a very convicted man. Um, High Noon's very convicted. Oh, yeah. I forgot he was in Design for Living and he was in Morocco. But doesn't he have like just a cameo in Morocco or was he the main character in Morocco? He was the main main character in Morocco. Very forgettable performance for us. (laughs) I think that's our more cancelable take is that none of us like (laughs) classic Morocco. Oh, he's, um, well, I've seen Design for Living. He's very funny in that. Well, his Wikipedia page says that Chris Pat, Chris Pratt was a big fan of him, or is a big <sighs> fan of him, so I think that's who we have to go to. That's who we have to go for. I think I could see Pine. I could see Pine, maybe. Yeah, give, yeah. You give Pine a couple years. I mean, right like above it. Like High Water think, is very high noon. Right above it, it I says think, Daniel Day-Lewis, so I think that's probably the answer for me personally. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to compare Daniel Lewis to really anyone besides Jeremy Strong because of that acting profile. I do want to briefly talk about uh, the differences between Western and Southerns and how they relate to the Lost Cause narrative. Um, and I don't want this to be just me talking, but if it has, you know, probably, so jump in if y'all probably will to. be because you know more about Westerns than at least I do. So. I love Westerns and one of the things that that's really just because I grew up watching a lot of Westerns, but one of the things that has kept me engaged with them is how it's like 
it's America's truest piece of mythology because it's taking relatively recent history and re-narrativizing it. Uh, the darker side of that, and I mean, Westerns can get pretty dark with like the genocide of indigenous peoples and all that. The darker side of that is the Southern, which is a term that has been used to distinguish movies that are about like the expansion of the West and going to like stake your claim with uh, re-narrativizing the Civil War around this idea of the lost cause. The lost cause narrative is um, this kind of idea of the war was something that like the war was a tragedy that was lost that um in the best circumstances it was like brother fighting against brother and to the point where like no one really understood why they were fighting and they were just kind of pawns of a bigger scheme that's why in birth of a nation at the end both uh, a confederate and a uh union veteran team up together to defeat the um the black people in the movie uh, the darker side of that is by tying it into kind of this idea of like it was states' rights and it was a violation of the autonomy of the South to go into it. And you get movies that fall on all sorts of lines of this. Probably the most uh, obvious is the Clint Eastwood movie, The Outlaw Josie Wales, which is about a man whose family was murdered by the union and then after the war he kind of goes out for revenge and kind of reframing this idea as the union has taken unjustly something from this man this simple like farmer um who represents not only the south but all of america kind of and then in like shandoah which i mentioned earlier it's this idea of well it's not pro-confederacy but it is one of those things where it is very enlightened centrist and the union soldiers also do bad things um, just as much as the Confederate soldiers do in that movie, um, which definitely makes it a complicated movie to watch. But then you have this movie, which kind of has like the, it's not going to take a side thing, but it also is very clear that the Confederates are the bad guys. So I'm wondering where you guys think it kind of falls into that. Well, I appreciate everything you just said, but to me, it, do, does it have to fall anywhere? <laughs> that's why. <I'm, laughs> like, well, it's an American movie that's using the aesthetics of westerns to talk about the Civil War. So, like, I think it. I I do think it has to fall somewhere on. I there. mean, I think it does not speak. To, <laughs> sorry. I didn't. I seen how last week we watched Guys and Dolls and how there are no contractions in that movie. Uh, I was like, it does not. Uh, it. I think it doesn't. I definitely don't think it's pro Confederacy. I think it is pro Union and very. You know, I think. I I I don't know. Like, again, I don't really think it takes a stance at all. Uh, but I think if it does, it's definitely more like, hey, these people need to take action and defend their home from these racists. Uh, I don't think it's a mistake that there is, like, I don't know what his role really was, but there is the black character who works for them, I believe. I don't think that's a mistake by the filmmaker that's like, oh, yeah, we'll just have a black, you know what I mean? It's like the, there's intent in that being there along with the Civil War setting. Can I parse out what it means? Not really, other than the fact that the Confederates we do see in these movie, this movie are all kind of 
despicable and it is outright said in the dialogue of the film this film is being this the, the war is being fought to end slavery it's not being fought like you know to they they refer to them as rebels but they say in dialogue i'm so used to like you know maybe it wasn't like this in the 50s but i'm used to growing up and people be like well it was really for states rights because i grew up in indiana so the fact that the movie is outright like no it's because i want to keep slavery and we want to abolish slavery uh to me i'm like oh okay so i think it is i don't know if i can call it leftist but i do think it's more on the left side of things than the right side of things i mean i don't know i feel like i don't know it reminds me of pearl harbor not the movie the event (laughs) it's just like that makes even less sense (laughs) no because it's like i don't know like yeah they have their like black there's a day that will live in infamy for sarah but it's like it's like oh you know it's bad but doesn't really affect us and then they like show up on their homestead and all of a sudden it's like a bad thing for them and it just i don't know i just feel like movies like this are so tone deaf for the time because it's like i don't know with their with with the the runaway slave who lived with them it was like they were like oh well he has a choice he has a choice now to go fight and it's like that's not really how that works though like he's fighting because he wants to go see his family again it's like it just feels like very like neutral to me it's not anti-confederacy to me at all and like on that note i feel like to be like oh you know it's it's you know it's anti-civil war it's anti-slavery but then it's like okay well did that actor like get to hang out with them did that actor get to like was he paid like a good amount like it's just like all these factors in it where it's like it just feels like so performative at least well it's is performative even today but it's like back then absolutely performative i'm sorry that was kind of that's kind of cynical but i'm just like well i don't no, i don't i, I don't disagree I appreciate with that being, like, i don't disagree with it being performative it probably is like but i don't know i get what you're saying i hear you and like I think you're probably right. <laughs> but I also think I don't know. Well, I, and, you know, it's it's complicated. We're looking at that's all. Yeah, and we're looking at this in terms of like how it's contextualizing the civil war. But, you know, Vietnam, I'm pretty sure Vietnam would would be going on by now and the Korean War would have ended. So, there would be a I guess the idea of this being an anti-war movie, which whether or not it's an anti-war movie, the book was anti-war and the original screenplay was like, that was, that had its own kind of idea in the, like it had its own presence in the zeitgeist. Um, Anti-war was becoming kind of the first for the first time, a sentiment that extended beyond, um, you know, world war two, it was like seven day Adventists and stuff who were conscientious objectors and, now in the 50s it's you know everyone uh progressive you know college students and you know uh, even liberal people were getting into it so i i don't know there's also that lens to look at the film through i will say to move on from something from this because i think i think i think sarah you had a good point i don't want to defend i don't want to be like well i think this movie is progressive when honestly Anything that's progressive in 1956 anyway isn't really progressive today. Like, period. Like, it's just a fact. Like, especially, like, a mainstream Hollywood movie that's going to be nominated for Oscars in 1956. So, but 
I do want to bring up some other tidbits I saw on the Wikipedia page that I do think are relevant. I think are interesting. One of which is more serious, which is that this movie had criticism about how it portrays the Quakers. Particularly, the two things Wikipedia cites are that although Quakers disliked having music in their church programs, they did like individual expressions of it. So the mom being like, we can't have an organ at home is like, you know, it's just false drama, which after reading that, I'm like, cause I'll be honest. I am like right now me watching this movie. I'm that, that I'm that guy who voted for green book because I was like, wow, that's so, so progressive. I never knew that was, a, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm so ignorant on Quakers that to me, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is so fascinating. You know what I mean? Like, so to me, I'm like, oh, that's kind of a bummer that they added all that if, like, there was no real drama there. But then the other thing to me is, like, apparently at the Quaker meetings, they don't read the Bible. They just recite it from memory, which I think to me is like, whoa, why wasn't that in the movie? That seems so much more, like, fascinating to me, personally. That's that's probably just a consequence of no one... No one involved. Uh, I don't know who wrote Quakers. the novel. No one <laughs> yeah, no one involved in the film production. Not a lot of Quakers in Hollywood, believe it or not. But I hope the person who wrote the book this is based on talking to a Quaker at some point. <laughs> yeah, but like, who knows if this was anywhere close to the book? No, yeah, it's definitely not. The book is, it's kind of funny, actually. That Wikipedia does say that the novel is uh, basically plotless. <laughs> which is a uh, well, got one thing right <laughs> novel is uh written by a woman jessamine west good for her she was born old is... she was what? born old she was born like 80 years old that's an old lady name <laughs> well her first name is mary so i feel like she might have just gone by jessamine to be like taken more seriously because yeah. the book came out in 1945 when she was 43 years old so. Well, the main character is named Jess. That's Gary Cooper's name. Is this a self-insert character? <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say, which I thought was interesting, that I had to return, I returned it from the library already. And now that I read this, I wish I'd watched it because it was a bonus feature. Is that this is the first film that they shot like a new segment on from the movie set, and the the DVD copy of it has like the clip. So it was on this show called Wide Wide World. Where they're like, oh yeah, here we. It's from night. It was a ninety-minute documentary series, where it was just like you know covering random stuff, and yeah, they uh, this is the set of uh, friendly persuasion. I feel like is kind of cool, honestly, that it's the first film, you know, beyond the news for that. Nowadays, I feel like anytime a movie shoots in like a big city, it's like, oh, here we are at the Avengers set, you know, on local news. And they told me to st- dig it off the grass by the fake 7-Eleven <laughs> and on the way to steel set. I just was, I'm still so bummed that, uh, well, <laughs> this is my favorite topic because I was like, such a bummer COVID happened because Batman didn't shoot here. What a lot. Like, that's, no, I'm sorry. That, that's not funny. So you're like, that's a win in my book. The Gotham and the Batman look so cool. I mean, they still shot here. They only shot exteriors. There are scenes in the Batman that I can tell are from Chicago. It's just not as obvious as the Nolan ones because Matt Reeves actually cares about looking like Gotham. But anyway, we don't need to talk about the Batman. <laughs> uh, you know what the Batman have that this didn't? COVID. <laughs> <laughs> the Batman had too much plot. The Batman was... 
I'm Batman is like an hour longer than this. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we could do it our games, but Sarah, do you want to read that IMDb trivia? Oh, okay. It sounds like okay. Here's the thing. Okay, so the first like five items on IMDb are all about Gary Cooper, but it sounds like he was desperate to not be in this movie. The Wikipedia article, I will say, conflates all of this. Other than uh, he did research Quakers, which is, I guess, that Daniel Day Lewis comparison. There, he went to a bunch of meetings, but anyway. All right, here we go. Gary Cooper originally did not want to play a father of grown children. This was despite the fact that he was 55 in real life. Ironically, many critics in 1956 felt he looked too old to play Jess Birdwell. Gary Cooper initially turned the film down because he didn't believe the American public would accept him as a devout Quaker father. Gary Cooper was strongly against the casting of Dorothy McGuire as he felt she was a poor actress and not attractive enough to play his wife. Gary Cooper you know- arranged for his... <laughs> Wait, wait, before you continue, do you know what his first choice was? Because Wikipedia says uh, what the yeah, first Ingrid Bergman. No. Oh, I guess that might have been his choice. William Wyler wanted Catherine Hepburn. Wow. After a way, they both were like, no. <laughs> they were like, both no. too good for this. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe that will help the movie a little bit. <laughs> Gary Cooper arranged for his daughter to date Anthony Perkins during filming, apparently not realizing the young actor was gay. Gary Cooper hated the way he appeared in the film so much that he never watched it after seeing the rushes. Gary Cooper was unhappy with his character, complaining to the director that audiences would expect him to get involved with the war. Mm. So, not a fan. You know what? Me and Gary, (laughs) we birds of a feather. (laughs) Uh, There is some gay content in this. It has nothing to do with Anthony Perkins, but uh, in the early, one of the early scenes, the sister asks the youngest brother, whether she's pretty and he says yeah i guess for a girl so uh that kid's gay and i'm here for it i gotta say now i'm reading about anthony perkins life and i'm just getting sad yeah i wouldn't (laughs) suggest doing that well he Uh, also i mean he was like a pretty cool person i really anthony perkins is cool as hell no yeah i'm just reading about the conversion therapy part which is always depressing to read about you know when anyone has to go through that it's a bummer. He did it by choice, but okay, because well, he felt like he needed to. Yeah, that's what, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's coercion. Like. Yeah. But all right, shall we move on to our our, our awards? Sure. I feel like we're done. Sarah, uh, apologies to the listeners that we didn't go over the plot, but there was no plot. Um, it, was, it was nothing. <laughs> Sarah, what was this nominated for? Best picture. Best director. Best Supporting Actor for Anthony Perkins. Best Adapted Screenplay. Best Song. Best Sound Recording. Which, I just want to say, the sound recording was horrible in this movie. It was really bad. <laughs> it, as someone who like has the DVD, so I know it's like the mixing it's supposed to be, I kept having to turn it up. And I was like, what is wrong with this? But yeah. Oh, we forgot to mention also, this one, the Palm Door. I did, I did see that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, guys! I like looking sometimes at the uh, other nominations before we give the awards is that this Marjorie Maine was nominated for supporting actress at the Globes. Ow. Good. Good for her. Also, this was mentioned as one of the best songs in history at AFI. Um, whatever. Uh, all right. I don't even remember there being a song. It's just over the credits. Like all these original songs that get nominated are. Um, Hot case, rah, rah. That's why it won. All right. 
Uh, looking at these, I'm really bummed because the two things I want to acknowledge, neither of them are nominated. I think I'll have to go with Anthony Perkins just off of, like, because I think the screenplay is fine. Uh, as someone who likes the screenplay, but there are a lot of digressions that I'm not a fan of that go too broad. And everything this is William Wyler's like best directed film we've watched. But I actually think Anthony Perkins does a lot to like make the sequences that I don't like work. I think he does a lot of acting with just his face. Uh, and I don't know. It, it's a good performance. I think it's not a great performance. And certainly I would nominate this number spot to someone who liked the movie. But I'll go with Anthony Perkins. That's the win. I will also say Anthony Perkins, but um, only because he was not nominated four years later. And he should have been. Moving for the spoiler. Hitchcock didn't want anyone to know. I don't think Segment was nominated for a single award. Uh, I'm going to look it up now. Hitchcock was famously uh, snubbed at the Oscars many times. I think it was nominated for stuff. I don't. Okay, but go on, Caleb. I'm going to look this up while you. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe I'm totally wrong because I've never seen this movie. Uh, Mr. Perkins is sweeping because the only problem with him is that he's not in enough of the movie. If he was, the movie may be better. For the record, Sarah. Uh... I know. I just saw it nominated before. <laughs> so why wasn't he nominated? What the heck? <laughs> yeah. Oh, tell me, like, tell me, like, the detective was nominated. That would be hilarious. The only pros- a- a performance nominated was Janet Lee. All right. And then, what would you add as a nod? I, I, I don't know, man. Guys, there's a there's a plethora of riches here. Come on. Plethora. <laughs> oh, no, no. There was. There was one side character who I liked. Let me look him up. He, he played the guy, Sam. Was it the guy who was running the cabins, or was it the guy with the weird mustache who worked at the the meeting? It was. It was his like uh, non. It was Robert Middleton. Uh, he played Sam, who was like their neighbor. Who they got into the horse buggy rides or chases. That's what I was thinking. You're talking about. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's he is so unexceptional in this movie. But he's like not bad, and that should just speak to how very uninspiring this movie is. I have to give it to him. So, what about you? I'm not stalling, but I just I'm on this Variety article from 1955, and it literally says adapted screenplay nominee unnamed because of blacklist. Uh, I wasn't were, stalling. They, I just got distracted. Oh, at least they were upfront about it. Like, you know, I would have just assumed they just listed the film with nothing else next to it. Um, for that reason, I will nominate uh, screenplay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no one gets to the award. I'm going to say <laughs> costume design. They look like Quakers to me. All right. So first off, I'll say what I was going to give it initially which was I was going to give it supporting actress to Dorothy McGuire. Because personally, I take a little bit of an insult from Caleb saying that this movie would have been better with other actors. Because I think the actors are not the problem with this film, even in your guys' mind. Maybe I'm crazy. To me, it sounds like your issues are with the writing and direction. I think the she does great with Catherine what she's Hepburn good. makes everything better. I don't think she would have. I think Catherine Hepburn brings a star persona to her role, and I think this role was better without it. I think Dorothy McGuire is really great in it. However, I assumed Gary Cooper was nominated for this, and I was ready to give him my win. So I will nominate Gary Cooper because I actually really love this performance. I think 
It's very nuanced. It reminds it does something where like as I said, it really reminds me of my dad in a lot of ways, his performance. And I, it was nice. I thought it had a lot of nuance to it in a very naturalistic way that I'm not used to seeing in these films in the 50s and 40s. So yeah, Gary Cooper. I thought he was great. Yeah. Gary Coops. G Coops. I'm sure he G- would disagree with you. Yeah, he really he, he was not a fan what, of this movie. What do, what do actors know about anything anyway? I'm just imagining him showing up every day to set me like you gotta get me off this thing. <laughs> All right. Uh so Hey that, Danny. Yeah, what's up? What are we watching next week? All right. Wow. Next week, we hit the big 30, 30th Academy Awards. It's not a tight episode because this episode, this next film, ties the current record of most nominations without a win, which was previously held by the Little Foxes with nine nominations and no wins. And I have a drum roll, please, for this film that had nine nominations and no wins at the 30th Academy Awards. It is Mark Robson's Peyton Place. Not to be confused with the Mia Farrow uh, Star Maker TV show. I don't know if you guys are aware of that thing. I'm only aware of it because you must remember this. Yeah, this is a two and a half hour long melodrama. This uh, movie looks crazy. No, yeah, I, I've heard of this movie before. Because uh, as I said, it was made into like a soap opera. And the soap opera is because the soap opera launched the career of Mia Farrow. And I feel like a couple other people too. But. Well. The last movie we watched that gave off soap opera vibes was Random Harvest, which delivered. So. Oh, Ryan O'Neill was in the other show and was in the TV, the soap opera. But yes, maybe it will be like, I hope it's like uh, Random Harvest. Again, that runtime, though, I'm like, okay. But yeah, Paid in Place will be what we talk about next time. All right. I'm Danny Vincent. You can find me on Letterboxd if like. For all my reviews on all the movies. You can also listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean, my Pixar Journey. A podcast where we talk about Pixar. It's crazy. Sarah was just on for Monsters Inc. She was on and yelled at for liking the movie. Not by me. I think it's a great movie. <laughs> I was immediately gaslit into being told that it was a bad movie. And I was like, no, it's good. What are you talking about to the person who gaslit? Marcus? Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Well, you can listen to that episode soon enough, Caleb. And anyone who's listening to this episode right now can find that one uh, wherever they found this podcast. So I'm going to get mad at that episode. Monster Inc. is great. It is great. We both agree. <laughs> I'm Caleb. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram, YouTube. That's it. Um, and from there, you can find the litany of other podcasts: Hot Trash Unlimited, uh, Star Wars Therapy, and All New Fifty Two, which I do with our editor Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. I literally like these episodes. I I literally lose my mind by the end of them. That's because um, I was like, "This is great. You're all great." No, sorry. I just. I feel like my brain is turning to mush. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, S-G-K-E-S-S-G-E-E-K-Y-29. You can find me on Letterboxd, my name, Sarah Kanoff. Look at my list. It's called Femtober. Read it. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. At this point, just find us. Uh, just search us. Um, 
That's it. And remember, right. God is love. I was gonna say, <laughs> I was gonna say, well, next time of Mark Robson's paid in place, we will see the them. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>